0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we'll turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 26, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, For the Sake of the Lost.
1: Over the years, by God's amazing kindness, I've been blessed to see numerical and spiritual growth wherever I've ministered. But I've also seen many conversions, and it's it's for that reason that I love ministering places where I'm out of what's been called the Bible Belt. I love ministering in the pagan belt, especially in in places where there are great many immigrants, people coming from countries that have had a, a minimum of gospel witness. Presenting the gospel where Christ has not been heard has been, for me, a great joy. But that has led to some very interesting conversations. People will ask, should you design the worship service for Christians or for non-Christians? See, I actually think that's a false dichotomy, one that's been unfortunately created by people who have in some instances just abandoned the gospel. See, when evangelism is done out of a church that does not preach the gospel and whose corporate life doesn't represent the life that Christ intends, Well, evangelism is always misplaced. Let's use the Corinthian church as an example. Let's assume that someone in the church at Corinth is is sharing the gospel with a work colleague somewhere in Corinth. You know, they invite them to come and witness the joint life of the church. And soon they discover a church where various members are suing each other and are divided about all manner of theological grounds. Someone's openly in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. I mean, well, I think you get the picture. That's not very attractive. And evangelism would be counterproductive. See, God calls the local church to be an authentic Christian community and the authentically Christian life is overwhelmingly attractive. Now, of course, there are churches that are insular. They become self-absorbed. No new person ever feels welcome there. I mean, they might talk about being authentically Christian and might even feel overwhelmingly proud of their deep spirituality, but they never reach out to anyone. I'm not talking about that. Paul assumes that non-Christians are regularly finding their way into the Corinthian church. He assumes they watch and they make judgments about the gospel on the basis of what they see. Clearly, the Corinthians are to be commended for an atmosphere in church that commonly had the experience of having unbelievers present in their services. So I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 25. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. Now, if you've been following through this entire section of Corinthians, you will no doubt be aware that 1 Corinthians 14 is all about the proper use of the gift of tongues. Paul has been teaching the value of tongues and also the place where tongues has no value at all. Tongues is of great value in self-edification, but it is of no value in edifying the church. Now, he knows that stating things this way is going to be controversial in the Corinthian church. So he begins, as he has in other places, by using the term brothers. Now, that term back in those days would would clearly have been understood to include the, the sisters as well. But the point is that Paul, in correcting their use of tongues, is not distancing himself from this church. They're still his brothers and sisters. So we see here Paul's gentleness with this church. And there's a lesson here, and we shouldn't miss it. See, I'm frequently alarmed how the gift of tongues, its, its uses and its abuses, are often the cause of, of Christians breaking fellowship and even heaping open abuse on one another. And Paul's example here is so instructive. The Corinthian church might have been a church that, that sometimes descended into chaos, and sometimes that was because of the abuse of the gift of tongues, but Paul maintains that they're still his brothers and sisters. But of course, while Paul is affectionate toward the Corinthian believers, he's also stern with them. He has what might seem like a, a harsh rebuke. Do not be children in regard to your thinking, he says. You're not acting like adults, he says. He means like children. You engage in behavior without asking what the outcome of your behavior is going to lead to. Now, we've all seen that in kids. I mean, they fool around and until someone gets hurt. They ignore their homework, even if it means that they're going to fail tomorrow's test. They get into trouble without figuring out how to get out of it. That's why God made parents. So it seems that the Corinthians were dealing with tongues like children. So they enjoyed the gift without asking, what would be the responsible use of tongues? And so in order to help this church grow up, Paul gives them an example from the Old Testament. And at first glance, this passage seems confusing. You see, because on the one hand, Paul says tongues are a sign for unbelievers. That's in verse 22. And then in verse 23, he says that if the unbeliever enters a Christian assembly and everyone's speaking in tongues, won't they think that you're flat out nuts? Uh, That's my interpretation of it. He says, they will say that you're out of your minds, but you do get the point. So which is it? Are tongues for unbelievers or are they not? Well, the answer comes in verse 21. He says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. So the verse that Paul is quoting comes from the book of Isaiah. Following the ancient Jewish practice, Paul refers to the entire Old Testament as the law, and then he quotes from it in quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. So this passage from Isaiah is a part of a longer teaching of God's judgment on Israel for for their disobedience to his word. Because of Israel's refusal to repent, God was going to be sending foreign armies against his people, people of strange lips and a foreign tongue. And when these people come and destroy Israel and Jerusalem, that is, when the Jews see their conquerors walking in their streets, speaking a language they don't understand, and in this, it's a foreign language, through that language, God will be speaking to his rebellious people. What's he going to be saying? Well, he's going to be saying, you're condemned, you're rejected, you're judged. I've given your city over to foreigners who will not respect your culture because they don't understand you and they won't have mercy on you. So the Isaiah quote has has nothing to do with the actual gift of tongues. It has to do with a foreign conquering army. Now Paul uses that image to speak about how the gift of tongues is understood by non-Christians who enter into a Christian assembly. See, if an unbeliever enters into a place of Christian worship and everyone's speaking in another tongue, he or she is not just going to say, well, these guys are kind of nuts. He's going to conclude that whatever they're saying is indeed a sign. And the sign is, I don't belong here. I'm being rejected. So what's the sign? The answer, you don't belong here. And when they get a sense that they don't belong here, they will not hear what God's speaking to them. That's why Paul says tongues are a sign to an unbeliever. It's a sign that they do not belong to the people of God. Now, I want us to take some time to reflect on what Paul is saying. Listen, this is so very important. He is saying that worship must be so designed that it must make sense to the non christian Notice he's not saying that Christian worship has to be seeker-driven. No, no. Worship must be designed to encourage and to instruct believers, but it must also be so designed that when an unbeliever walks in, he or she understands what's happening. Isn't it fascinating how much Paul wants non-believers to be a part of Christian worship? That was his concern. The good news of Jesus must be heard in the world, and even though Paul, like Jesus before him, did bring the good news to the world in in large evangelistic meetings, still, Paul is concerned that the local church be the avenue in which the good news about Jesus would continually be heard in the world. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I personally work very hard to teach the text of Scripture in such a way that it's understandable to everyone. When there's a technical word in the Bible, like redemption or sanctification or propitiation, even salvation, I try to explain it using words that everyone can understand. See, I'm convinced that when we worship and when we teach and preach, we direct our comments to believers, but we do so in such a way that the unbeliever can understand and even make an appeal to him or to her to come and be reconciled to God. That's comprehensible worship to everyone.
0: Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy, while well, the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians, Empowered Living, Volume 1, available digitally or on CD, free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: God wants worship services to be attractive to unbelievers, so what practical application can we make? Well, first, we should avoid unnecessary offense. Everyone speaking in tongues offended unbelievers. Of course, some offense is always going to remain. I mean, the call to repent, to trust only in Christ, that's always going to be offensive. Some churches, in order to avoid offense, don't mention certain things that are politically incorrect in our culture. I think that's a mistake. See, if we follow the Bible through verse by verse, we will come upon topics that are controversial. I mean, there's no way around that. We should allow that offense to remain. What I'm arguing for is to remove unnecessary offense. Of course, in our day, it's not only the, the gift of tongues that can cause offense. I mean, there are some churches that actually have had a practice of excluding Christians from sitting anywhere they want to in a public worship service. <laughs> Look, this might shock some of you, but some denominations actually had pews reserved for sinners. I, I think that's shockingly offensive. I also think that some churches construct a worship service that is difficult to understand. Now, now here I don't mean the difference between a, a traditional service versus a, a contemporary one. I, I, I don't think a traditional service is offensive to a non-Christian at all. I think, however, that things should be explained to help non-Christians to understand. We should want to create an environment where the only offense is the gospel the word, the person of Jesus, that's it. Not special clothing, not, not weird rituals, and certainly not the speaking in tongues. Avoid unnecessary offense. Secondly, we should emphasize conviction and response. That's what verses 24 and 25 are all about. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. See, prophecy has that sense to it. It convicts, it it brings awareness of sin and the need for a cruel, blood-soaked cross. See, when Paul speaks of the secrets of the heart being disclosed, is he assuming that a prophet mentions something personal, something that the prophet knows about that person personally? but that's not necessarily the case. The the word convicted can mean either a conviction of sin or a conviction of the truth. Let me give you an example of that. See, on more than one occasion while I was pastoring, I heard a story that went something like this. A person will say I arrived in church and and I was sure that my friend who invited me had told you something about me so that the entire sermon was directed specifically at me and I got very uncomfortable. And it was only later that I recognized that, that you knew nothing about me, but it was the, the Holy Spirit using the word to convict my heart. See, indeed, that's what Paul assumes. Unbelievers attending Christian worship are convicted of their sins. They're convicted of the truth. Now, that sounds reasonable, but still, we have in this passage the idea that, that all are prophesying and that the unbeliever is called to an account by, by all. And that seems to give a picture of the entire church ganging up on this poor, hapless non-Christian who had the extreme misfortune of being in church and then being set upon by everyone. See, is that what's happening? Is that what Paul is envisioning? See, I don't think so. Anthony Thistleton, in his excellent commentary on this passage, suggests that the all means that the unbeliever is convicted by all that is said, not by all speaking directly to him or to her. It's not that the prophets are speaking directly to the person, or that the prophets know the secret of any individual's heart. See, Paul imagines a scenario where a prophet is speaking and reaffirming Christian truth, and that truth speaks to the human condition of alienation from God and of deceitfulness and and depravity of the human heart and of the need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And That feels so overwhelmingly personal to the person who's being convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul envisions is not a seeker-driven service, that speaks to the felt needs of the hearer, helping them to feel good about themselves. Rather, he imagines real Christian doctrines applied to the depravity of the human heart. Hence says Paul, this only happens when we are speaking real understandable language, communicated in a way that makes sense. Now, now before I move on, I want to draw your attention to that phrase, if all prophesied. So does Paul actually envision a public worship service where all the congregation gets a chance to say something, and that something is a prophetic word? Now, please keep in mind that Paul is creating a hypothetical situation. He's been using that as a means of teaching. Remember chapter 13, verse 1, where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. It's hypothetical. And in chapter 14, he would say, If everyone prophesies... Not that they are, but if everyone did, wouldn't that create conviction? See, as we continue through this passage, what we're going to see is that there are various contexts in which Christians met together. But before we get to that, let's review what we've learned. Three principles. First, he wants worship to be intelligent and intelligible. Second, he wants it to reach out to lost people. That's basic. That's, that's ground level. However we do spiritual gifts, we must not violate those principles. Now comes the third principle, which is the invitation for us all to use our spiritual gifts. So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And as we read this text, we are again back to the idea that the worship of the church in Corinth maximized participation from the congregation. People would come ready to share various things. It looks like everyone participated, and you might be wondering, I mean, how is that possible? If you have a church, let's say, over 250 and more, I mean, that becomes less possible all the time without resulting in chaos. It seems more like what might happen in a a small group of about 25. There are different contexts for our worship. In many places in the early church, the church didn't have a building, so, so they met in homes. In Corinth, the church would have been made up of different house churches, each holding a limited group of people. Of course, the Bible doesn't indicate that that's the only place where Christians met. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, the very first Christian church met in a place called Solomon's Colonnade, or or Solomon's Portico, which was a vast meeting area in a a courtyard in the Temple of Jerusalem, which would hold many thousands of people. The early church started with 3,000. It quickly moved to 5,000 and then beyond. See, in that context, you can be pretty sure that each person didn't show up, as we see in verse 26, with everyone having a hymn and a lesson and so forth. It just doesn't work in that context. We know that many New Testament churches met in small house gatherings, and we know this happened in Corinth. But it's also quite likely that large, expansive homes of the rich with huge courtyards were set aside for larger meetings, which would include the celebration of the Lord's table and instruction. And that's the sense you get when you read 1 Corinthians 11. This is not unlike what many churches do today. They have a large public gathering on the weekends, and then they also have smaller meetings in home groups throughout the week. So why am I mentioning all that? See, it seems likely that the context of verse 26 is one of those smaller meetings in the smaller home. So, in those smaller meetings, verse 26 teaches that everyone is to contribute. So, where did Paul expect that non-Christians would come? To the large gatherings or to the smaller ones? I think the answer is he expected them everywhere. Paul expected that Christians were always opening up both their small group meetings and their large gatherings to non-believers. He assumed that the gathering of believers was never a closed affair. Christians were always inviting family members and work colleagues and friends and business associates to come to a meeting of worship among believers, where believers were being taught, where they sang together, where they celebrated the Lord's table, and in smaller meetings where where people could share words of prophecy and even tongues followed by interpretation. Paul simply assumed that the Christian church was an open door at all places to a lost world. And that meant They were always explaining their faith to a world that needed to hear. And we should do the very same thing. We should constantly be asking ourselves, what will our services mean to someone who's never heard? And we should always have an openness that allows people who have never heard to come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ.
0: John a great message you know it made me think about the booklet that's coming out that you've just written called uh, what is the gospel and you know one of the things you tried to accomplish through that I think is what Paul is in essence talking about is that sense of allowing that book to deepen a person's understanding of what the gospel is that would be the believer even but at the same time making that booklet and the gospel accessible to the non-believer so that they might understand as well.
1: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that, Ben. We really can do both, and I tried to do that in that short book because I think among believers, sometimes the gospel is lost. They need to have it re-explained to them. They also, as you said, they need to have it deepened so that they have to see new insights But whatever we teach, I think we should never teach in such a way that if a non-believer picks this up, say, I have no idea what he's talking about. In fact, I think that book would be an excellent book to give to a non-believer. They should be able to understand with great ease what it's talking about. So I think that becomes a model for how we should conduct ourselves in the Church of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much, John. Back
0: to the Bible Canada. Well, we teach the Bible. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, Now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims, this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway and very special musical guests more information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now so call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more